Courageous Parents Network is about and for families. It is also about and for the pediatric providers who commit themselves every day to caring for these families. The platform is becoming a destination for families and providers to hear and learn from each other about the shared enterprise of caring for a seriously ill child and the associated issues that come with that. In this podcast, Dr. Wynne Morrison, Director of Pediatric Palliative Care at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, talks with Blythe Lord about what drove the creation of Courageous Parents Network. Hi, I'm Wynne Morrison. I am a physician practicing pediatric critical care and palliative care at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I direct the palliative care program. And I'm very honored today to be talking with an expert in helping parents of children with complicated illness, Blythe Lord, and I'll let her introduce herself. I'm Blythe Lord. I am the founder and executive director of Courageous Parents Network. I am the mother of three daughters, ages 23, 19, and my second daughter, Cameron, died at the age of two in 2001. Her life and my husband's and my experience of her care and another unusual part of our story was really the seeds for Courageous Parents Network. I should also add that I am the co-chair of the parent advisory group for the AAP's section on hospice and palliative medicine. Blythe, I love how you describe your family and talk about how many children you have, because I've heard from some parents, bereaved parents, how difficult a question that is to answer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what they say, you know, what do they say to others when someone casually says like, oh, well, how many children do you have? And I think that you answered that beautifully. Do you have any thoughts on that question? I certainly have had a lot of practice answering this question. So now it's second nature to me. I do remember in the early days and by early days, I mean like up through like 10 years, it took a while to figure out how I wanted to answer it. It being a very, very difficult question. It felt like a loaded question. I mean, I will say that now if I'm talking to someone who I have no, I don't anticipate ever having a relationship with in any way, I will typically say my oldest is 23 and my youngest is 19. And I don't mention that I have a second daughter just because I don't want to get into it. And that way I'm not pretending that Cameron didn't exist. I'm just not mentioning my middle child. So I'm not lying, but I'm not opening a can of something important that I'm not going to get into with this person. That's my go-to alternative answer. Obviously talking to this audience and when I do this work, I am very comfortable talking about all three because I know that for families, as you said, when, when a child has died, one of the adaptations that parents have to make and siblings too is answering the question of who's in your family and how you talk about that. And I'll never forget when my older daughter, Taylor, who was four when her sister died, started school this was two years after Cameron had died. She had to do a picture of her family and she didn't put Cameron in the picture. And it was like a dagger to my heart. And we were working with a counselor at the time and she's like, that's just what Taylor's doing in this moment and that's healthy and that's fine. I was like, has she forgotten her sister? Or is she blocking her out? What is this? And it was, nope, that's just what she's doing right now and that's okay. You know, that's popped up in other ways over the years. 
when she was in high school, took her a while to tell some of her friends that she had another sister. And by that point, I'd learned that it was not my timeline, it was hers. Can you tell us a little bit about Cameron? Well, Cameron clearly had from birth a very wonderful, easygoing disposition. She really was very easygoing from the beginning. And no one made her happier than her older sister, Taylor, who was and is two years older than she. And some of my happiest memories, Charlie's and my happiest memories, are of watching the two of them together and watching how Taylor loved on her and watching how Cameron just lit up for her sister. And when we let ourselves look at home videos, because it can be you have to steal yourself to look at those. They're precious, but you have to be in the right frame of mind because of course you're gonna start bawling. Those are the ones that always make me happiest is seeing the two of them together. We found out she had infantile Tay-Sachs, which is still sadly devastating. And it's a very progressive, fast moving condition. When we found out that she had it and the diagnosis story is unusual, she never stopped being that essence of herself of course, we, a person doesn't, but she never spoke. She died at the age of two, and starting in her second year, the disease was taking things away from her, so she could never roll over. She stopped being able to sit up by herself. That was a very brief window when she could sit up by herself, and she never spoke. I never heard her say my name, but all of that was okay because we just understood what the diagnosis that our expectations were that that wouldn't happen. I believe it really helped that we had another child who's older. And I can see how it would go in a different direction for a different person. But for me, I didn't feel robbed of hearing Cameron say my name. One, because I understood she couldn't and wouldn't. And two, I had been gifted that already with my older daughter. So I didn't feel as robbed. I was, of course, heartbroken that my daughter was never going to walk and talk and have love outside of her family and you know the things that race through your mind of what she won't ever have but those were just in the early days shortly after diagnosis i mean in the first week or month after her diagnosis i ran through the list of all the things she wouldn't have the the headline part of anticipatory grief but i moved on from that pretty quickly and with the help of palliative care and the help of my brother and sister-in-law and the help of my husband we really focused on what we could give cameron so that we could say she had the best possible life she could have i mean when you are imagining what a two-year-old with a neurologically devastating condition wants you know it's She's not telling us what she wants, even if she could have. She was only two. But it's parenting, right? You just, and we really felt like we knew what she wanted and that guided our decisions at the end of her life. And then what does every two-year-old want? To be with their family, right? And safe and comfortable. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exact. And she had that in spades. <laughs> that felt good. How long after Cameron's death did you start thinking about what you might do to help other parents. The way I describe it, it grew inside of me as a feeling that I wanted to do something turned into a feeling that I needed to do something that became fairly urgent. 
At one point, it was almost oppressive, which can happen to parents where they feel like, oh my God, you know, what am I supposed to do? My child's legacy, my life needs to be transformed by this for a greater good, not just in the privacy of my home and my heart. How am I transformed in a bigger way? I'm not saying that people should be transformed in a bigger way. I'm just saying that can manifest for some people. I, I've seen that, and certainly I experienced it myself. And partly it was that it wasn't just my daughter who had died. It was her first cousin. My husband's twin's son also had infantile Tay-Sachs, and that's part of how we found out that Cameron had it so early. I felt that something very important had happened in our family, these two babies, I also felt the fact that we had gone through it together, my brother and sister-in-law and I and my husband, and the fact that Hayden and my brother and sister-in-law had really shown the way, because Hayden was a year older, and we had a lot of anticipatory guidance just watching them, and we had community with them. My husband was there when his nephew died and was able to tell me what end of life looked like, and I experienced what a difference that made I felt like that had really helped us. So I didn't feel like I could hoard that specialness. The uniqueness of this situation made me feel like I was supposed to do something with that. I needed to share it in some way and make it better for other families. And that, the timeline for that, I mean, the seed was planted immediately, but I began to feel it growing inside of me probably eight years after Cameron died. So that'd be 2009, and it just started getting bigger and bigger. I was always a video producer, and I did these projects on the side to dip my toe in the water, and I learned how to, I got trained to facilitate bereaved parent support group. So I started to tiptoe into these waters. We started a foundation, the Cameron and Hayden Lord Foundation, to fund pediatric palliative care programs and research, and also to fund medical research for treatment for Tay-Sachs. So... That helped me get closer and closer to the topic of palliative care, and I came to know people like you and your colleagues as the field was coming online. I mean, I was really drawn to this field of palliative care, the people who were practicing it, and I got more involved with our patient disease group, and I saw how in need families were and how none of them knew what palliative care was, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, there's this whole field of care that you families need to know about. So... All of this was happening at the same time. I started Courageous Parents Network 12 years after Cameron died. It takes time, and I was gathering data and paying attention to myself. It's great to hear how it developed in the trajectory and also the, the need for that. It seems like you're very careful to never say how anyone else or any other parent should feel or should react or respond. I imagine you also think about that all the time when you are deciding what resources to make available through Courageous Parents Network and how to have a diversity of experiences, voices, opinions, backgrounds. How actively do you think about that? We think about it very, very actively. It is a sensibility that is always front of mind. It is a driving value that there are no right or wrong answers and that if you get the process right of communicating care goals and values with the other decision makers in your pod, whether it's the patient or child, him or herself, your parenting partner, the medical team. If you get that right, you'll arrive at the right answer. It can be yes, 
I want that intervention or no, I don't want that intervention. We really promote the importance of shared decision-making and what it is and what it looks like. People trained in palliative care understand what it means to come towards a family and meet them where they are and help them figure out what it is they care about and to accompany them and support them, but not be the boss of the family. And with the help of the doctors and nurses and social workers can get the input that they need to make the decision. They all have to be working together for it to go well, in our opinion. I will say though, when in the early days before I had spent as much time with families and before I had spent as much time with palliative care providers, listening to them and hearing them, how they talk about shared decision-making and families' care goals and values, I was not nearly as open-minded about decisions. I had a very strong point of view about the best way to go. And it was driven by my own experience and what I felt had worked well. And it was also informed by what I had seen hadn't worked well for other families. So I was sort of putting two and two together. But you can't do that because I've also been so surprised. That's one of the things that has happened is I have been opened up to how families operate and how many different ways families can want things and how there's, again, no right or wrong way. And that, to me, a decision or a choice that is what I would never want, that family is happy with and is at peace with and content. And I've learned humility and just to not assume that I know what's going to be best for people. I actually think that idea of humility is a great palliative care skill. You're reminding me of research done by Pam Hines, who's a nurse researcher at Children's National Medical Center, who you know I believe you know, and Chris Futner, one of my partners on the palliative care team here, talking with parents about what it means to be a good parent, yeah. and you know how many parents maybe you know hold that in their minds as they're making really tough decisions for their children, and probably you know doubting themselves about whether they're making the wrong decisions or being bad parents. When I was conceiving of Courageous Parents Network and doing literature research to sort of build the case to look at what was out there about what helps parents, what research was there out there about what parents need and what parents find helpful, I landed on Pam's 2009 work, and I just was like all over that. It spoke to me, and I understood it as my truth. I loved that it was parent-driven. One could say that everything about Courageous Parents Network is driven by the mission to help parents feel like they have been the best parents they can possibly be. And what we've learned from our work with parents, which is consistent with Dr. Hines, although that work is putting a much finer point on it, like Dr. Futner's attributes and things like that, is when we have surveyed parents about what their priorities are, it's number one is advocating for their child. I want to be the best advocate for my child possible. And then you know you could dig down to see what that means. I want to make decisions that are consistent with my family's care goals and values, which is related, of course, to advocating. And I want to take care of my whole family, especially the other siblings. Those are the top three things that they want mm -hmm. help with. And of course, decision-making falls under all of those things, right? I mean, they're all enmeshed. And all of that is so I can feel like I've been the best parent I can be to my child who's not well into my other children if I have any. And all of that goes towards how you feel after, which if your child dies, and then what you have is the, I mean, in addition to the memories of them, 
how you feel like you were as a parent. Dr. Hines's work reveals this, and certainly it was true for me. If we can minimize regret, we can maximize healing. Enmeshed, as you said, I think is a great way to think about that because it's not like they're competing priorities that you're just weighing on a scale one against the other. They're all interacting on so many different levels. I imagine that hearing all these different stories from other parents in your whole video library that you have can be so normalizing for parents that are in the midst of, you know, these really tough times that it can help them feel like, you know, the things they are feeling as hard as they are that others have been through this before. Yes, I mean, one of our goals is to reduce the isolation that parents feel. Certainly there's the actual isolation, but then there's the psychic isolation. I mentioned earlier that my husband and I did not go through it alone. We went through it with my brother and sister-in-law and it was a game changer to be able to have conversations with them around things like feeding tubes and pneumonias and hospitalizations. Their son Hayden died before Cameron and I was able to see them after and see how they were and talk to them about it. They gave me visibility into my future and helped me see the whole notion of, well, if they can do it, I can do it too. And so that was part of Courageous Parents Network was using my background in video production to produce interviews of families who are either going through it or had been through it and use those voices of parents for parents going through it now to both learn from them, certainly, do that anticipatory piece, and also to see that they are not alone. And I do know that for some of our families who are actively caring for a child, we've heard that the ones, the people they want to hear from most, the videos they want to see most are from the bereaved parents. The other piece of it is that parents give parents permission to do things that maybe parents won't give them themselves. Permission to ask questions, make decisions, say yes or say no, and not feel like their decision-making is being hijacked by something outside of their control. I think letting parents hear from other parents who have made decisions gives them permission to make a decision like that too. We recently heard from a mom, she's actually in a different country, and she told us that Courageous Parents Network has been instrumental, like game-changingly instrumental in giving her permission to, in this instance, say no to a bunch of interventions that her child's medical team has said, well, it's standard in this situation to do this. And she in her gut felt like that was not what she wanted for her child and not what her family would, would be best for her family. She and her partner, or I think her husband, she literally said, Courageous Parents Network has made it possible for me to sleep at night, which was an extraordinary thing for me to hear, right? But, but I think it's because it helped remove some of the guilt she might have felt at opting out of things. It's hard to say no. It's much harder to say no than yes, and I think a lot of the direction of this stuff is about saying no to things. Palliative care teaches sometimes saying no is actually saying yes. I'm saying yes to what I think is best for my child, which in this instance is saying no to that intervention. One thing that I've valued when I recommend Courageous Parents Network to families as a resource is that 
you also get input from medical professionals to have some of the, I guess vetting might be the wrong word, but from a medical professional perspective, I trust your resources because I know that you've had some healthcare providers involved in helping to develop them. That has been very important. Our lead provider who helped us shape the language that we used and the way we talked about it was a pediatric psychologist. So she was instrumental. The rest of our provider advisory board were palliative care people who, you know, reviewed our materials and helped us identify. I mean, we had our own values from the beginning. It was by parents for parents. It's actually now become much more about by parents and providers for parents and providers. It's a bi-directional platform, but we've been trained in how to frame things properly the way a palliative care provider would frame things, including, for example, no judgment, no right or wrong. We've learned the language of palliative care, like shared decision-making and advanced care planning. We invite providers to contribute. That's core. Like now, all of our new content for families is generated by a team that includes parents and providers. Not only do we want to make sure that it's good for families, the fact that we are a trusted resource by providers is critical because we want providers to be referring families to us and make it be a no-brainer for them. You guys don't have time to watch it first and then say, okay, this will work. I mean, ideally you would watch it first just so you know, but you're not going to vet all of our 600 videos and make sure like so you don't have time for that you just have to know we can trust this resource boom so that's key otherwise you're not going to refer to families which is key for us secondly you guys are using it in medical education as well and you can't use it in medical education if it's not reliable safe professionally done all those things so we have a vested interest in making sure it's really good I think we all worry about, you know, what families might be finding out there on the internet, whether that's false information or judgment, you know, or any variety of things that can actually cause some harm. So I appreciate how much care you put into that. I know that your pediatrician was a very important person in helping you and your family, and I believe is now a palliative care practitioner, but was not at the time. What things did he do that really helped? Our primary care pediatrician, who was already our older daughter's pediatrician, his name is Dr. Richard Goldstein. He is the one who delivered the bad news. He did a fabulous job of that. Fabulous. It's like doing the worst moment of my life. He was present for and an active ingredient in and did it as well as, I think, something could be done. He practiced anticipatory guidance with us. He helped us understand what was coming and he sort of gave us a roadmap for the types of resources we would likely need to support Cameron, the type including doctors, like a neurologist to help with seizures and a child psychologist to help us figure out how to talk to our older daughter, Taylor. He really paced it out with us, so he didn't give us more than we were ready for. He understood that while Tay-Sachs is very fast progressing, we did still have time. So we didn't talk about medical orders until it was time to talk about medical orders. He knew that my husband would be willing to have that conversation in a way that I, not that I didn't want to have orders, I just didn't want to do that work. So he did that work with my husband, not me. 
he had conversations with us about where we wanted our daughter to die. And he, well, first he had conversations with us about how we never wanted her to be hospitalized. And he helped make it possible to treat all of her pneumonias at home. We learned from my nephew Hayden, who was a year older, that emergency department is a very bad place for a child with Tay-Sachs. They struggle easily. They can't handle the noise. If possible, she should be home for all of her pneumonias, we said. We were like, we don't want her hospitalized. So he worked with his team in his practice to make it possible for her to be home for all of her pneumonias. And then at the end, when she had her last pneumonia and he came to our home and he said, yes, she has a pneumonia. And he listened to us when we said, we don't want to treat this last pneumonia. And this was not a surprise to him because he'd had conversations with us about baseline. He helped us understand the notion of baseline, which he used that language and he described it as a series of descending stairs, which was a visual that my husband and I could really get our mind around and that there would come a time when we would be at the bottom and the plateau would be such that maybe that wouldn't be what we wanted for her anymore. There was a lot of trust there. So when we decided not to treat her last pneumonia, it had been his impulse as a pediatrician to treat it, right? You treat pneumonias. He talks about how he had to set aside his training, set aside his impulse as a pediatrician to treat, to recognize that the goal now was purely to keep her comfortable as she as the pneumonia progressed, and he helped make that possible. And I will say that he was not trained in palliative care. While he ultimately chose to become licensed as a palliative care specialist, he was not trained in palliative care. And my particular, of all my passions, primary palliative care and palliative care in primary care is what I would love to see more and more of. Families have such a important relationship with their child's pediatrician, especially if they have other children, that I feel like it's a shame if the primary care pediatrician does not feel confident and empowered to do that work because of how, certainly I imagine it makes the pediatrician feel like they're being a better doctor to that child and family, and certainly it makes a huge difference for their family. In my travels with Courageous Parents Network, I always ask families about the role that their pediatrician is playing. They're non-specialist. And certainly there are some diagnoses where the primary care is happening from the oncologist or from the neurologist. But I have often heard about how important the primary pediatrician was for them. And it is always really gratifying and I think an important thing to pay attention to. This concept of primary palliative care and that it certainly does not all need to be provided by a subspecialty team is key. I see that working in the intensive care unit. I think of, you know, some skills as core competencies that any intensivist should have working with families with complex decision-making or at the end of life. And sometimes they need to bring in a palliative care team, but not always. And especially as we, you know, think about workforce and how do we, you know, provide this sort of care to all who need it, it cannot all be provided by subspecialists. So these are very important questions. I think there is a shift happening and that the conversations about core competencies in what was always the specialty of palliative care is moving, dissipating across all of these specialties. As you said, complex care, critical care, cardiology, pulmonology, neurology, it's coming in there because of the recognition that it's just good care and the clinicians themselves 
want to be able to do this work. It's great for them to be able to do so and to feel comfortable doing so. Mm -hmm. Anything else you wanted to bring up or questions that you have? <laughs> I'm curious to see how you have seen the shift in the palliative care referral. Palliative care as a subspecialty and bringing palliative care, you touched upon this, but what you've seen in your field, the critical care field. It's a great question and I've been working in palliative care for 15 years, critical care a little bit longer. I came to palliative care before there were even palliative care fellowships through my work in critical care, just by realizing it was so vitally needed. And like anything you do, the people that I found in palliative care were such amazing people and, you know, doing true things to help others. When I started, there was definitely among the providers in some areas a resistance to involving palliative care in the care of their patients because that felt to them like they were somehow giving up. And I know families sometimes report that same feeling and so yeah. do the doctors at times. And, you know, I remember that particularly in the cardiac surgery population and then sometimes with some of the oncology, you know, might say something like, well, we're not ready to introduce palliative care to this family yet because there's still a lot more that we're going to try and a lot more that we're going to do and just not wanting that conversation to happen. Palliative care has done a huge amount of work to, you know, really try to educate people. Our team has grown and has seen more and more patients. We're now accepted in every area of the hospital and called very frequently from every area of the hospital. Partly it's also by having champions for our palliative care team in every area of the hospital, those who realize it is valuable. It doesn't mean that every family is going to be ready to meet the palliative care team, at, you know, even when that doctor has decided it's time to introduce the team. I remember one story of a mother who said that when she first met our team, she kind of took the card and she was thinking like, oh, nope, don't need these people, put it down in the bottom of her purse. And it was a crumpled card in the bottom of her purse for four years mm -hmm. until a later time when her son was again on a ventilator in the ICU. And she thought, I need to, where's that card? Found it, yeah. called us and really use the team at that time. She didn't, wouldn't have benefited her four years before, but did four years later. But it's also in my mind, keeping a door open that if it turns out that it's not the right time for a family right now, it's not the right time for a family right now. And maybe we help the team talk through what they're struggling with so they can help frame it themselves with this family. And then we leave the door open, you know, for later involvement. Timing is everything. I mean, two for life, but certainly palliative care. I mean, there will in all likelihood not be enough palliative care subspecialists for families who would benefit. How are you thinking about helping more people in the critical care department where you work understand and develop some of those core competencies? How are you doing that? We have a program right now that's directed by Jen Wong, one of our physicians in palliative care, working with program directors in multiple specialties, including the critical care program director to really train the fellows in communication skills. It's a program that was developed in Pittsburgh, the Vital Talk program. And mm -hmm. I think really does, you know, by practice with actors and having to do it again and again and, you know, try it different ways until you get all right, it feels right for you as the medical trainee. I think it really does help them grow some of those skills. And I 
also have to say that I've been so thrilled at times when I've been in a family meeting, maybe with a fellow from the neonatal intensive care unit or the pediatric intensive care unit, and I see them pull out some of the skills from the toolbox, from those practice sessions that they had, and use them so skillfully and really, you know, help a family navigate the situation by doing so. It's very exciting when that happens. (laughs) So what's your vision for integrating parents into educating pediatricians? Oh my goodness. Well, I'll answer this in two ways. I have been really moved by how eager pediatric providers, including pediatricians, are to hear from families. Mm -hmm. I have been really moved by how much they respect the family voice and how they want to hear from families. And of course, that happens when you invite families in person to give rounds. But with CPN, we're bringing the family voices through video or blogs to making it available 24-7. My sense of responsibility is CPN will find the families who we feel, who we hear, have important things to say and are saying them in a way that is inviting and constructive and educational so that others can hear it, whether it's another parent or a pediatric provider, can hear it and learn from it with the hope that it will inform the care they deliver. I know it's being used for that purpose, so that is very positive. The other part of my answer, Wynne, is that parents want so badly to be invited to share their story not just for other parents, but for providers. Because if you go through something like this, you want to feel like your very difficult experience can turn into something positive for somebody else. It is important to, not only is do I think it's a good idea to include parents in research, parents want to be included in research. If the question is framed nicely, a parent will never have any hard feelings about being asked to participate. They might decline, but they won't wonder why they've been asked. They will appreciate the invitation. And my instinct is that my impression is that more often than not, a parent would say yes. I think that's been a debate among researchers who try to study the needs of bereaved parents or anything having to do with end-of-life care of, is it putting an undue burden on a family or just making a bad situation worse to see if they want to talk about these things. But I think most agree with you that, you know, many parents want to contribute in that way, that we wouldn't want to put any blanket ban on asking parents if they want to participate. And they can always say no. They can always say no. I mean, it may be difficult and it may be hard as a parent to complete a survey or do a phone interview, but that doesn't mean you don't want to do it or that you don't feel in a way better after revisiting a difficult time, it may trigger sadness and it may trigger grief, but with the right framework around it, it can also be therapeutic. Obviously, there's some things you're not going to revisit or you wouldn't revisit for good reason because it could trigger something traumatic, but I believe that on balance, for sure, there's therapeutic value done well. I really do think that stories have so much power for families in this situation where they can feel very lost, very alone. You've said this before as well, that just 
being able to hear from some other parents, even if the situation isn't the same, or even if that other family doesn't think about things exactly the same way that you might, that it, you know, lets these families sort of try on different approaches to how they might think about what's most important for their family. And also to realize that there, in many, many cases, are a variety of different approaches or decisions that are okay, with which they can still be good parents and amazing advocates for their child. Hearing some of these stories can really help to make that okay. And it's not going to give anyone answers. Part of the work is still figuring out what are those core values for yourself Mm -hmm. and your family. And it may be, you know, I I heard you say at one point, you know, when you and your husband needed different things at a certain moment, you know, sometimes it's also having the patience to realize that it's not going to be immediately cohesive. But I do think the stories that you provide can give the parents a little bit of a lens to reflect and try things out. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.